Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Good morning. So good to be with you all this morning. And if you're joining us online, uh, welcome. Uh, today, we're wrapping up our series that we've been going through that we've called Beyond Myths, where we've been really looking at what it means to be people who are shaped by the truth. And part of what we've been exploring is the fact that we're all susceptible to believing things that uh, aren't true. And we're learning to pay attention to this reality that myths or lies, if left unintended, unattended, or if they're not looked at carefully and we're not paying attention to them, they can actually, over time, be destructive and cause real damage in our lives. And so during this series, if you've been tracking with us, we've been looking at some of these uh, different common myths that are easy to believe, that if we don't think them through critically, uh, that we can, again, they'll, they'll shape our lives in negative ways. And if you've missed uh, this series, or maybe if you're just joining us for the first time in person or online, uh, you can go back and, and look at some of the, the other weeks, go to our YouTube channel and watch those. But if you've been tracking with us so far, uh, we're going to put some up, up, up on the screen and see if you can remember some of these myths that we've looked at already. Okay, See if you can finish these sentences. Okay, So the first one, everything happens for a reason. Very good. The second one, what goes around... And the last one, all religions are the? Good job. You guys are paying attention, at least to those parts. Amen. It's always good. Uh, and so, you know, as together, we've really been looking at how these phrases can shape our beliefs in ways that, again, that point us away from the truth and shape us in negative ways. And uh, now we've only had a time so far in this series just to look at a few of these myths and we're going to look at another one today but part of our hope as we've gone through this series and what we want you to pay attention to is the fact that there are different lies and different myths beyond these ones that we need that can shape us that we need to pay attention to not just during this series but but beyond this series as well to realize how important it is in our faith and as Christians to learn to recognize and to discern those lies and those things that move us away from God and his ways. And one of the key scripture passages that we've looked at, uh, I think, so far in this series comes from John's Gospel. And it's where Jesus says this about the importance of being those who are shaped by the truth. This is what it says in uh, John 8. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here Jesus is reminding us that to commit to following him means to take seriously this call to live in the truth, to be shaped in such a way that it sets us free. 
And so to do that, for us, you know, it's really important as well to pay attention to the things that are, that are required in order for us to do this. Things like reading the Bible properly or learning to discern and think critically. Or it means to avoid even the temptation to take shortcuts or to take kind of the easy path just because it seems simple or straightforward. And it also means learning to grow together in community, to learn together as a church community. And this is such an important responsibility for us that whether we like it or not, because whether we like it or not, we're all prone to believing in lies, especially the kinds of lies that are almost true or mostly true, uh, that are distorted just enough that over time, again, they cause destruction. And one of the trickiest ways that, you know, I was thinking we can believe a lie and when it's actually built on a statement that by itself is true. Okay, think about that. It makes things extra tricky for us when there's a statement on its own that's true, but when over time it's actually been, been used in a way that it no longer means, when it comes to minor head, it no longer means what it was originally intended to mean. And we actually have many examples of, of these kinds of phrases or these words in our languages or in our cultures uh, whose meaning has changed over time when we think of them. That when we think of the word and what it brings to mind for us, the meaning has shifted from what it was originally intended. Okay, so I thought of a few examples that I wanted to put up that we can look at. These are just from the English language. Okay, you can probably think of your own, but a, th a few words whose meaning has kind of changed, at least for some of us. Okay, the first one's sick. This is more for me. Now it's kind of a double meaning to me, right? As a teen, I mean, obviously, you know the word sick means if you're ill, you need to go to the hospital, you have a cold. For me, as a teenager, it became what? Became cool, right? That's the, I don't know if that's still a, a thing, but that's, so now it has two meanings for me, okay? Another example is awful. I don't know how many of you know this, but what, does anyone know maybe what the original word for awful, kind of the, the original meaning was? It actually meant awesome, it comes from the word awe, right? Now we use it in completely a different way, that it means something really bad. Uh, and this is my personal favorite, okay? Literally, okay? Or literally, if you're from Ontario or Toronto, they say literally, okay? Literally, uh, I mean, my, my, my teenage girl uses this all the time. I mean, my wife does too. I use it. But it's, you know, the way that we use it is, is probably the most ironic because it actually is the opposite of what it was intended. It's actually used now as an exaggeration, right? We actually say something like, I literally, I literally froze to death. Like, no, obviously you didn't. You're just cold, <laughs> right? But there's all kinds of examples of these kinds of words in our culture or these statements whose original meaning has shifted over time. And the point is that, you know, it's one of the trickiest ways that we can believe a lie is when we look at a statement that's no, what, what comes to mind is no longer what's originally intended. And this week, we're going to look at this type of phrase as we think about what it means that God is in control. Now, right away, when you hear that, when you hear that statement or you hear that phrase, God is in control, what, what um, you know, as you hear that, what is, it's, it's actually what, that statement? It's actually true, right, that God is in control. This idea on its own is not a lie or a myth. But as we get into this phrase and as we're going to look at it today, if we're not careful, over time, the meaning behind the statement God is in control can become so warped in how we think about it, what comes to mind and how we apply it to our lives, that to the point that when we hear the phrase God is in control, we're no longer now holding together this original meaning and this original kind of intention. And instead, we're now believing or thinking of a lie or a myth. As Christians, we need to think deeply about this idea that God is in control 
and to correct a lot of the baggage and the misunderstanding and the damage that can easily accompany this phrase and how it gets shared with others. So in a moment, we're going to look at a popular verse in the Bible that's found in the book of Proverbs. And so far in this series, one of the things that we've tried to do uh, as we've kind of helped, you know, to discern the truth and to pay attention to lies is we've talked about how important it is to read the Bible properly. Okay, and one of the things we've talked about is how important uh, that in order to read the Bible properly, in order to, to do that in a way that keeps us from believing in lies or letting myths take root in our lives, is to learn to avoid pulling verses out of context that disconnects it from the whole Bible. Okay? So as we think about the principle that God is in control, uh, one of the ways that this truth can get warped is by doing, pulling this, this verse out of context. It comes from ver- Proverbs 16 Verse 9, maybe you've heard it before. We'll read it to you. It says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Okay, it's quite a popular verse in the Bible that's meant to share some really important wisdom for us. But one of the, the, it's one that can be easily twisted to mean something else when this verse is taken out of context. Okay, because what is the one thing that you can, or what is one thing that you can easily conclude as you read this Proverbs? It's that if God is the one who determines our steps, then there's no reason to what? There's no reason to ever plan, right? Why would I ever plan anything if God is just going to change that anyway? Or if God's going to take me in a completely different direction? Like, why plan if God is going to control my every move or my every step? And when this verse gets taken even further out of context, some people even use it to say that all planning is evil. Just all planning at all is evil. That you should never make plans or plan anything because it goes against God or it's trying to compete with him. Now, if we really think about this idea deeply and we take that to heart, can you imagine what the world would be like if nobody ever planned anything? Can you imagine even in the Bible if this was true? If if people in the Bible took this verse in that way, that you could never plan anything. We'd never have any cities being made or buildings. We'd never even have any churches. Not only that, but if people in the Bible took, took this idea that we should never plan, we wouldn't even have a Bible, right? Nobody would have ever even bothered to take the time to write these letters or these books for a worshiping community, no, let alone the fact or the commitment that it would have take, taken for others to kind of write copies of these and to, to travel long distances and send them out to church communities, which is how we have the Bible that we have today. But when we learn to read this verse in its proper context and to keep it connected to the rest of the Bible, what we learn that it's really saying is that as we plan and as we take initiative and as we move forward with those plans, we would be wise to do so with open hands. That we should be mindful that not only to, not, only not to hold on to those plans too tightly, but to learn to ultimately surrender to God. Because ultimately, he is in control. This verse is meant to teach us that God is in control in a way that doesn't negate or eliminate our own role and our own responsibility to take initiative and to take action and to make plans. But when we don't commit to thinking through this properly, we confuse or we distort this idea that God is in control with the idea that God is controlling Okay, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's a really important idea that God being in control does not equal that God is controlling. 
It does not mean that we should never make plans or take initiative or make decisions because God wants to control all of that for us. Instead, the bigger principle that this verse is meant to teach is that God is in control in a way that ultimately means that we can trust him at all times. It's meant to teach us that God is in control in a way that even if our plans change or even if they don't work out exactly as we had hoped, that we can still trust God. The proper understanding that God is in control is that while God is sovereign, at the same time, he's not controlling. And this is part of what makes him trustworthy. You know, if you really want to think about this principle of God's sovereignty, more than we really have space for regularly on a Sunday morning, one of the ways that we try to really create a space for you to kind of ask more questions or think more deeply about some of these big pictures or these big ideas and principles is in our weekly Bible studies that we do or in our learning series. And one important principle that we talked about this past week in our prayer Bible study on Tuesday is this really, really important idea that God never overrides our humanity. Okay, this is maybe the most or one of the most important principles to hold together this idea that God is in control but that he's not controlling. That he is in control in a way that never overrides our humanity. He's in control in a way that respects our freedom and our free will and our ability to make choices and to make mistakes and our freedom to actually love. And if we miss this principle, we think that not only is God controlling, but we begin to see ourselves as things that should be controlled. We begin to see ourselves more, less like human beings and more like robots. Okay, and now let me just say, nobody actually consciously does this, right? Nobody, you know, in, in theory thinks they actually want to be a robot rather than a person. And nobody wakes up one morning and goes, okay, today I'm going to be a robot. I, I, let me find out how to do that. You know, unless they're really into video games, okay, <laughs> Pastor Dom and myself. And, you know, they, they like the idea of being a cyborg or something. That sounds really cool. Uh, but whether they like, you know, we're aware of it or not, for all of us, there are times when we're all tempted to think or to function more like robots than human beings. Because in many ways, it would make our lives so much easier. Okay, and here are the few ways that I thought of, you might find, think of your own, but a few ways that I thought of that we're all tempted by the idea of acting more like robots than human beings. Okay, the first way is that we're tempted by this is to avoid making tough decisions. Think about it. Robots never have to make tough decisions, right? Because everything is already decided for them. And who doesn't want that at times, right? When so often when we're faced with a tough decision, we'd rather, if we admit it, just be told what to do. It makes so, things so much easier. When faced with a tough decision, we'd actually prefer that God, the idea, this idea that God wants to control every decision we make because then he can just tell us what to do. And, you know, this way of thinking has many dangers, but one of the kind of dangerous things that can uh, come out of this approach to, is, is a certain approach to making the decision. Maybe you've done this or you know this, where you just open your Bible, you open to a random page, and you put your finger on the verse that comes next, right? I don't know, anyone want to admit that they've done this before? I've actually done this a few times, okay, as a, especially as a teenager. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed is when you do this approach is whatever you land on, the first thing's never quite right, right? You have to keep going until you actually find something that you like. 
But that's the kind of things we're prone to doing if we think that for every decision, God is going to tell us exactly what to do next. A second way that this robot view can be tempting for us is similar to the first one, but it's as a way of avoiding responsibility. If you think that God is controlling, this verse, uh, or this idea can be used to never take responsibility for our actions. That it's safer to just avoid things completely. That like a robot, it would be easier almost if you could just shut off or shut down. Right? That you could, in those times, ignore the things that are happening around you until you get a clear word from God. And the third way that we can be attempted by this idea of being more like a robot is that there's always something, someone or something to blame. Especially when things go wrong. Right? It's so tempting to view our relationship with God this way because it makes sense almost of times of uncertainty or times of confusion or times when things aren't going as planned or as we hoped. We want him to make all our big decisions. You know, things like to tell us where to go to school or what job to take or who to marry or what city to live in so that when things do go wrong, we can blame him if it doesn't work out exactly how we hoped. And on the flip side, you know, it's easy to... You think that if things don't go as we hoped, then if it's not God's fault, then it must be our fault, right? Because somehow we must have missed out, we must have fallen out of his will, we must have chosen the wrong school or the wrong spouse or that we went right when he told us to go left, you know, and that somehow as a result, he's, it's almost like God's decided now he's just going to throw away the remote that controls our lives and we're going to be left on our own. You know, I'm not talking in this last one about an example of something, a decision or a choice that's between something that's right or wrong, or a decision between something that's a sin or that's not a sin. I'm talking here in this last example about a a decision that's between two choices that are both good. That it's easy to think that if something doesn't go as planned after, you know, we've moved to a new home or switched jobs or whatever it is, that it either must be God's fault or uh, that we must have heard wrong. As you look at this list, which of these are you most tempted or prone to falling into? Maybe it's, um, maybe this week God is inviting you even to pay attention to the ways that you're prone to be attracted to this idea that he is controlling. And by this temptation, maybe to behave more like a robot, maybe more like somebody who is being controlled, whether it's to avoid tough decisions or to avoid responsibility, or or uh, maybe if you're prone to blame God or blame yourself for everything that happens when things don't go as planned. Instead of holding together this idea that God is in control, meaning that he is sovereign and he can be trusted even when things don't go according to plan that he's not controlling of our every decision. There's a, a piece that I looked at uh, a few weeks ago that came, I came across on the BBC, uh, and it's, I'll have it up on the, the screen here. It's called, God and Robots, Will AI Transform Religion? Okay, it's a crazy idea that they did a piece on, and you can see the description on the side here where it says, uh, it's talking about this video, and it says, um, Experts say major global faiths are discussing their relationship with AI. And some are starting to incorporate this technology into their worship. Robot priests can recite prayers, deliver sermons, and even comfort those experiencing a spiritual crisis. Can you imagine? Isn't that crazy? 
This story is basically about how some religions or even some churches in the world are beginning to replace priests and pastors with actual robots. Okay, now I know what you're going to say before you kind of get smart with me or send us, send Pastor Dom or me an email about which model of robot you prefer over us. Uh, you know, we really have to ask ourselves this question as we think about this idea is what is driving this reality that we live in a world where people think it's better to have robot priests than actual people? You know, as I think about this, I think that one of the biggest reasons why is because we're part of the world that cares more about efficiency and control than the messiness of real relationships. But it's easy to replace people with robots because robots are more efficient. And that's not to say, you know, that robots are bad or even that's, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that robots do something better than, than uh, humans do and to take that to our advantage. But we do have to pay attention to the fact that we can be so shaped by the view that God is controlling that we begin to believe, to, to live our lives in a way that efficiency and control should take priority over the messiness of real relationships. And you don't, you, know, you don't have to be, as you think about this idea, you don't have to be a Christian or to believe in God even to be shaped by this idea. That if you're part of a world that you think should be gov governed by predictable outcomes and being as efficient as possible and eliminating waste wherever you can, that control starts to take precedence over the things in your life that are important and it starts to kind of shape how you view all of your relationships. And when we're shaped by this idea, it's easy to start to see others by their own competence or by their functionality or instead of the things that actually make them human. And it's easy to judge or to criticize others based on how effective or how efficient they are or how well they're, they're doing something for you or following instructions or whatever it is. And, you know, as we think about this idea, there's this story in the Bible that I want us to look at quickly, briefly here, that really exposes what it looks like to be shaped by this worldview that says or wants to control or judge others based on efficiency. It's this moment that's recorded in John's Gospel where Jesus is sitting at a table at the home of uh, these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus, and he's also sitting with a few of his disciples, and they're in this town, excuse me, this town called Bethany. And here's uh, what happens. It says, A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. <clears throat> Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at this story, I have such a hard time understanding why Mary did what she did. Why Mary would use so much perfume to anoint Jesus. And I mean, you know, I think the idea for all of us, even of, of somebody anointing somebody's feet with perfume, is weird to us in the first place. But especially when we read that she used up so much that it was worth a full year's wages. Now, I bought my wife Jasmine a, a bottle of perfume for Christmas last year, okay? And it, was, it didn't cost me a year's wages, but it was expensive enough. 
And, uh, you know, I, you know I, I thought that was expensive. I couldn't imagine spending a whole year's worth of salary on it. Now, she smells good because of it. Like, she didn't before, but now she does. No, I'm kidding. She always smells great, but now she smells even better. Okay, so I get, you know, but I couldn't imagine spending that much. But can you imagine just being there at this meal and seeing someone do something like this? You know, seeing somebody maybe waste something like this, whether it's at your, your work or your home, how would you react? I know if I was there, I would be thinking right away, I'd be thinking this, what a waste, right? And if you're, you know, you're business savvy at all, you're an entrepreneur, or even if you just work in the business world or for an organization, what comes to mind right away that you're thinking? You're thinking, what about the opportunity cost, Right? Just think of the, what the money could have been used for. And this is really what Judas is saying. Think of what the money could have been used for if Mary didn't go and waste all of that. Like, couldn't she have used just even just a little bit for something you know, and saved the rest for something more important? And I can imagine even what Judas and the other disciples are probably thinking at that moment. That shouldn't have Mary have at least asked Jesus first if this was okay to do? Or shouldn't she have waited for instructions on exactly what he wanted her to do with that perfume? You know, I know I'm so bothered with what Mary does in this story because I'm shaped by this warped view of control and efficiency. I'm so shaped by this idea that comes from the idea that God is controlling that I think that efficiency and control are what matters most. Um... Lately, uh, we, I have this tradition at home with my, my wife and my three girls that we've started doing. We don't do it consistently, but we'd probably do it on average once a month where on a Saturday morning we'll wake up and we'll make brunch together. And our girls usually ask, you know, if we can do this, do I have time? And so we'll make, you know, we'll decide if we're making pancakes or waffles or crepes and we'll make uh, just one of those things and then we'll make like bacon and, and eggs and fruit and we'll do that all together and uh, they've really enjoyed doing this with me you know baking together and except I've noticed over time especially over the last year or two that more and more they're not interested in baking with me and I realize it's because as I thought about it that I get so controlling in those moments like I don't let them decide how many chocolate chips even to put in the pancakes or how many bananas or how to cut something a certain way and I care so much about them like not like measuring everything perfectly and following instructions so well to the point that they don't they've stopped kind of really wanting to bake with me anymore and I realized that I missed in those moments the bigger principle that what that kind of that time was about was really spending time in relationship with them that it was spending time together and enjoying that time in order to prepare a meal together and it didn't matter exactly how the meal turned out you know and I realized as I think about this that one of the things I missed is how really God helps us to mature, that part of helping them mature even in that moment is to give them the initiative to make some of their own decisions, to decide how many chocolate chips, to use their imagination and their creativity, that that would actually help them to grow, that that would help our relationship, but it would also even help them learn how to bake. It's so easy for me and for all of us in a to do this in a world that's so shaped by efficiency and control. After Mary decides to use all his perfume to anoint Jesus' feet, this is how Jesus responds to the complaint from Judas. It says, Jesus replied, 
leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't make it a priority to be generous to the poor. You know, we just even talked about that earlier in the gathering. And again, this is another verse that if isolated, the meaning can be disconnected from the rest of the Bible and even the rest of Jesus' teachings. But what Jesus is saying here is that instead of being criticized, Mary should be commended for the initiative and f- that she showed and for, the pr- for prioritizing her relationship with Jesus instead of worrying about how much perfume she's using. And not only that, but in this moment, Mary is demonstrating what a true friend she is to Jesus because of what she does for him. That she symbolizes for us what it looks like to be a true friend because uh, without him kind of having to say anything to her or without any special prompting, she is the one who recognizes on her own what Jesus is preparing to go and do. She is the one who's connected to the bigger story here. And so she's the one who anoints his feet as an act of preparing him for his death. When Judas and the other disciples have missed this completely. See, Jesus points us to a God who is both sovereign and in control, but not controlling. And Mary recognizes that God in the person of Jesus is someone who can be trusted even with what's about to unfold in their lives. She demonstrates what it means to be a true friend to Jesus and to take initiative through this act of love that she shows to him. As you think of this story of Jesus and Mary, what relationship comes to mind maybe for you? Where have you maybe been tempted to replace the messiness of real relationship with the need for control or for efficiency or functionality or whatever it is, and that as a result, maybe you've missed what really matters most in that relationship. Just a few chapters later uh, in John's gospel, Jesus will again sit around at different disciples now, sorry, a different table now with his disciples in an upper room. And as he's sharing this intimate moment with them, he will begin to really prepare them now for his death. And he will help them understand the significance of what he's about to do when he says these words in John 15. Jesus says, go to the next. Jesus says, there is no, no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. As we look at these words, I wonder if in this moment, Jesus, as he's telling this to his disciples, is thinking of that moment with Mary of Bethany. As he explains that to grow and to mature in our understanding of who he is is to understand what it means that now he calls us his friends. That it's to move from seeing ourselves as God's slaves to understanding that he wants us to experience the freedom of a real and dynamic relationship with him. You know, and if I can just go a little deeper, just for one second as we begin to wrap up, as we consider this idea of God's sovereignty, and what it means to be aligned to God's will and to God's purposes. 
that it's in the context and the freedom of a real friendship that we learn to desire and to, to, to love the things that, that align with God's ways. It's not in the context of a slave who's being forced to do what he wants us to do. Dallas Willard, you may have heard of him. He was a pastor and an author and just one of the great kind of Christian thinkers of our time. Uh, has this great quote that he gives about what it means really to that God sees us now not as robots but as his friends. And here's what uh, Dallas Willard says. It's a big quote here. I'll read it out for us. He says, what we want, what we think, and what we decide to do when the word of God does not come or when we have so immersed ourselves in him that his voice within us is not held in distinction from our thoughts and perceptions, these show who we are. Either we're God's mature children, friends, and co-workers, or we're something else. In other words, what, what Dallas Willard is saying here is that real growth and real maturity happen in the context of a dynamic and loving relationship with God where we're learning to take initiative and make decisions and where we have just naturally become so shaped by God's ways and God's love for us that we don't need him to always be telling us exactly what to do at every moment because we've been, we're learning to naturally love the things that he loves as we learn to worship him. And to, to do the things that he wants us to do. And as we kind of live into this and this becomes more natural to us, we learn and we discover that there are some things that God actually really loves when we decide. That he loves when we participate with him in that way. This is a picture of a God who can be trusted. It's of a God who we can trust is both sovereign and ultimately in control and who has promised to be with us and to even go before us as we grow and as we mature and as we learn to discern well and to take initiative and to take risks and even to make mistakes. It's the kind, picture of the kind of God who loves it even when we use our imagination. Then as we learn to participate in the things that align with his ways and his purposes and that give him joy. As we think, you know, again, of Jesus' words to his disciples that he now calls them friends. It's so meaningful that when Jesus does this, he, does the, he says these words as he's preparing to go to the cross. Right? Because the cross is the greatest symbol that we have to show that God is both in control but not controlling. It's the greatest symbol we have for a God we can trust because he paid the, paid the ultimate price to be in relationship with us, to restore that relationship with us again. It's by the cross that he won our freedom once and for all. It's by the cross that he has now victory and power over death and over destruction and over all kinds of evil. It's by the cross that he showed us that he has not abandoned us, but that he is with us. But it's by the cross that, he, you know, the way that he accomplished this was not by coercion, it was not by force, and it was not by control, but instead it was by emptying himself, by paying the ultimate sacrifice and giving up everything out of his love for us. And it's this image of the cross, as we think about that, it's what, how, what God did and how he chose to do it that brings real transformation to our lives and to our world.
This is how God, in his sovereignty, chose to transform. Because of the cross, God shows us that real change doesn't come through being controlling or by treating us or others like robots, but by respecting our humanity. We're transformed not by control, but by his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And now, instead of him controlling our every step, Jesus now invites us to choose to choose whether we want to say yes to him and whether we want to follow him, to participate in what he's doing in the world, knowing that he alone is worthy of our trust. Maybe if you're listening or you're here for the first time, you're listening online, the idea of, of Jesus and even what he did is new to you or of saying yes to him. Maybe you've never even thought about the cross that way, that we follow him because he is trustworthy because of what he's done in the way that he did it. This week as we wrap up this series and you consider what it means to be those who live in the truth. Consider what it means to live in the truth that God is sovereign, that he's in control, but he's not controlling. That we can trust him knowing that he's in control and that he ultimately gets the the ultimate and the final victory. He has the final say, but he does so in a way that at the same time honors and respects who we are. This is how the truth sets us free. This is what it means that Jesus is the truth and that he's trustworthy. Maybe this week as you think about this and as you go from here, think about it what it means to be shaped by this truth. That God is in control but not controlling. To trust that he's with you even in those moments where he doesn't tell you exactly what to do or when you're not sure what to do next, that he is with you and that even by his spirit, he has gone before you, that he calls you to trust him, that he's setting you free even to use your imagination, maybe in a way that you never have before, to try things and to take initiative and to participate with him and his purposes and according to his ways. Or maybe this week you can even just take the time to ask God, God, Where in my life have I let control grip my heart? As I think of my own relationships or the ways that I live my life, where have I, instead of being shaped by your grace and your forgiveness and your patience for others, that I've begun to see them just through the lens of control and efficiency and what I can get out of them or what I want them to do? Jesus reminds us that because of the cross, he is setting us free to follow him now to say yes to him as the truth, as the truth that is trustworthy, that is worth following, to know that he's the God who can be trusted because his truth sets us free to mature and to grow as we learn to participate with him and to love him and love others around us. As we close, let let us pray. I invite you all to stand. pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the mystery of the cross. Just what you accomplished by your death and resurrection and what it means for us now that we can live as those who are set free and to follow you as the truth. To be shaped by the truth in such a way that you, you the grip of 
uh, control is losing its grip on us. That we're shaped now in a way and freed in a way that we can learn to love others, God, as you do. That's in line with your character. That you are in control but not controlling. God, we thank you that you alone are the God who is trustworthy. That we can trust you with our lives and that as we learn to follow you and to be shaped by you, that it changes everything, that it brings transformation to our relationships and to our world. God, as we go from here and as we wrap up this, this series, help us to continue to pay attention to the things that distract us, to the lies and to the myths that shape us in the ways that don't align with your ways. God, help us be those who live by the truth, who learn what it means, Jesus, to love you and what it means that you are setting us free and that ultimately you know you have already won, our vic- won the victory. God, that we can trust you even when we're not sure what to do next or we're not sure what's coming or or we're in a situation where things haven't gone as planned or quite as we hoped. That, God, we, we can know that in those moments as we look to you that we can trust that you're with us and that you're guiding us and that we can depend on you. And so be with us as we go from here. Go ahead of us by your spirit, God. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks everyone. Thanks for being here and for those joining online. Uh, Just a couple quick things. Next week, we're starting a new series, our Christmas series, as we enter the Advent season. So really excited. Uh, You know, we're also next week doing a child dedication. And so love for you to come and just even invite a friend or a family member to that. That's going to be just a really special time for us as a church community. And just before you go as well, you know, as we've wrapped up this series and maybe as God has stirred something in your own heart that you want to talk about or you want someone to pray with, we have an amazing prayer team who's in that space at the back here. Would you just take the time, you know, just to, just to, just to pray with them, just to kind of in, invite them into something that you're wrestling with or you want to invite God into. So again, thanks everybody. So good to be with you and we'll see you next week. Have a great week.